Turn to your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 6, verse 20, within God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll turn there uh, in a moment. Amen. Wedding rehearsals. I probably have been to more wedding rehearsals than anybody in this room. And I know how nervous couples can get the day before their wedding. And this couple was nervous as well. But this bridegroom was nervous about one thing. He came to the pastor and he said, You know when you come to the wedding vows... You know, when it comes to my part, and I have to promise to love, honor, obey, forsaking all others, and be faithful to her forever, could you just cut that part out? Here, here here's a hundred bucks. As he passed a hundred dollar bill to the preacher, uh, uh, if you'll, here's a hundred bucks if you'll just cut that part out. The, the minister took it. The next day, the wedding ceremony transpired, and when they came to the part of the vows, the pastor looked the groom square in the eye and said, Sir, will you promise to obey her every command, her every wish? Will you promise to serve her breakfast every single morning of her life. Uh, uh, Will you swear eternally before the Most High God and your lovely wife that you will not even look at another woman as long as you both shall live? The young man was in shock. And with a tiny voice, he looked at the preacher, he looked at the congregation, he looked at his bride and said, Yes, The groom leaned toward the minister and hissed. I thought we had a deal. The preacher handed back the hundred dollar bill and whispered it in his ear. She made me a better offer. <laughs> Last week we began a brand new series called Lover. I couldn't think of a better, better way to end up this year than knowing our lover, Jesus Christ, knowing Him more, loving Him more. I I am amazed as I read this book that the most prevalent, the most pervasive picture of our relationship to our Lord, the most pervasive symbol that we have, the greatest metaphor that we have in the Bible of our relationship with the Lord is not one of king and subject, judge and defendant, not even father and child, and definitely not master and slave. The most prevalent picture that the Lord gives us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is of bride and bridegroom. The Lord wants us to undeniably know that he's the lover of our soul. And the closest picture on this earth that depicts his heart for us is the love, the real love that can exist between an ideal husband and wife marriage. Last week we discovered the incredible parallels that are between the ancient Jewish wedding customs 
and our salvation relationship with the Lord. We go there this morning. Last week we focused on stage one. This morning we're going to focus on stage two of the Jewish wedding ceremony and our relationship with the Lord. This morning I preach a message entitled, We're Engaged. We're Engaged. You remember the day you were engaged. You remember the day You were engaged to Jesus. If you'd like to follow along with me and fill in the blanks this morning, if you'll remember the ancient Jewish wedding customs, uh, it was in stages. The ancient Jewish wedding was revealed in stages. The first stage was the arrangement stage. The arrangement stage. In ancient Jewish times, who arranged the marriages? The parents It was marriage first, and then hopefully love afterwards. Write it down. When the prospective bridegroom was of marrying age, he would travel to the home of his bride and pay the dowry price for her. Oh, I wish they'd bring those days back. I wish they'd bring the days back. Hallelujah. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Oh, you know, I have two daughters. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that young man and his father paid for everything? It was custom that part of the dowry would form a circlet of coins around the young bride's head. Have you ever seen pictures of women in the Middle East, even today, wearing a circlet of coins around their head? That was akin to girls wearing today an engagement ring. The circlet of coins, part of the dowry price, proof positive that the dowry had been paid. The circlet of coins symbolize love, marriage, covenant relationship. Today it's an engagement ring. I I can't tell you down through the years of pastoring how many girls have come up to me. Uh, Pastor, 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 look at the rock. I made him buy me. And I'm looking at the ring that's already in his nose. The engagement ring. Today we would say, we're engaged. Back then they would say, we're betrothed. Betrothal, Jewish betrothal was much more serious, much more legal than our engagement is today. And I'll go there in a moment. The dowry price. Jesus. Jesus, our bridegroom, left his father's house to pay, we looked at this last week, a high price for us, his bride. Not silver or gold. But he paid the price in his own precious what? Blood. The bride, the price that he paid for us was unspeakable torture, unspeakable rejection, uh, the shedding of his blood, the taking of your sins, my sins, the world's sins upon his holy self. This did not come easy. Three times Jesus prayed a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And three times God did not answer that prayer. What was the prayer that Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, let this cup pass from me. What did he mean? If there's some way 
that I can achieve salvation of mankind without the cross, if there's some way to go get around the cross, make it possible. I don't believe Jesus feared the shedding of His blood as much as His divinity shrank back in horror of the sins of the world being poured out upon His sinless person. Let this cup pass from me. But then suddenly there's a note of victory in the Garden of Gethsemane as we hear our Lord cry out, Not my will, but thine be done. What was it that put Jesus on the cross? What was it that pinned Jesus to the cross? Not the nails. Love for you. Love for me. He sought you and He bought you with His precious blood. <laughs> he desired you. He initiated. He chose you. Think not that you have chosen Him. He chose you first. Loved you first. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Next time old Slewfoot the devil whispers in your ear and declares, uh, you're worthless. You're, you're cheap. You're unworthy. You're common. You're ordinary. You're a nobody. You just retort back. <laughs> I want you to know, old Satan Slewfoot, I am somebody in Christ Jesus. I am His bride, and He is my bridegroom. I have been bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. I am not my own. I've been bought at a price. I'm the bride of Christ. Hallelujah. The bride of Christ. I'm betrothed to Jesus. The bride would forever wear the circlet of coins to prove the love of her husband. That's why we sing about the blood in this church. Other churches have taken the blood out of their songs, their choruses, and their hymns because they don't want to offend anybody. I want you to know, as long as I'm here, we're going to sing about the blood of Jesus. He paid it all. Precious, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why we lift our hands and praise with our shouts of praise. Uh, we praise Him for His amazing grace. We praise Him for His amazing love. That's why, that's why, once all of our construction is done, you're going to see on the front of this building, at the highest point of this building, you're going to see a symbol. You're going to see a construction. Uh, you're going to see uh, 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 that which is, is smacks of His love for us and our love for Him. Uh, a girl today will wear her engagement ring for the rest of her life to testify of her husband husband's love for her and her love for him what do what symbol do we wear as a church building of our love for him and his love for us we're going to get a new cross on the front of our building it'll be the highest point on this church because he's the lover of our soul hallelujah amen nothing nothing but the cross the betrothal the second stage in the ancient jewish wedding was the betrothal stage Again, why we would say we're engaged, they would say we're betrothed. The betrothal stage for the ancient Jews was far more legal, far more serious than engagement today. When you're betrothed, 
you're actually and legally married. Mary and Joseph, what stage were they at when Jesus was birthed and born in Bethlehem? They were at the betrothal stage. They were legally married, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. You see, back in ancient Jewish times, you would go through all the legalities, you would go through the marriage ceremony, but then there would be no honeymoon. You would be separated, husband and wife, for 12 months. He would return to his father's house, and then at an unexpected moment, 12 months later, he would return and snatch away his bride to the bridal chamber where the marriage would be consummated and the marriage supper, hallelujah, would ensue. Does that bring back any parallels to your mind? In my father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you that where I am, you shall be also. I will come again. Well, that's next week's sermon. That's the third stage. We're in the second stage. Legally married, but they have not slept together. And they will not sleep together at this point. But they're legally married. The moment you invite Jesus into your life and accept Him as your Savior, the price paid for your sins upon His cross, in that moment, you become betrothed to Jesus. More than a Christian, more than a Christ follower, you are now the bride of Christ. And He is your divine bridegroom. The betrothal featured the mikvah, a cleansing ritual for the bride. The mikvah is the bride's purification by total immersion in water. It demonstrated that her former life as she went under the water, her former life is now over. As she comes up out of the water, a new life with her spouse has begun. Oh, you plainly see the salvation parallel. Water baptism is the Christian's mikvah. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, And you husbands show the same kind of love to your wives as Christ showed the church when he died for her to make her holy and clean. Washed by what? Baptism. You see how Paul makes the parallel? And God's word so that he could give her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish being holy and without a single fault. What's the difference between salvation and water baptism? Salvation is the reality. Water baptism is the ritual. Salvation is an inward cleansing. Water baptism is an outward expression of an inward work. I can tell you still don't get it. Let me give you another picture. 1977, fall of 1977, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Pastor is on bended knee. Now imagine, as I'm there at Lake Geneva, by the resort there in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, on bended knee, 
this beautiful harvest golden moon. Full moon is rising. The stage band of the resort begins playing 1940s love songs. And I'm holding in my hand a ring that Becky had already chosen. And I said, honey, Becky, will you be my wife? And she said, yes. One of the greatest days of my life. It was done in private. It was intimate. It was personal. But then, on May the 6th, 1978, we stood as a couple exchanging vows confessing and professing our love and our faithfulness one to another before a whole congregation of witnesses. It was public. Asking her to marry me, agreeing upon marriage, agreeing upon oneness was done personally, but the ceremony of marriage, our wedding day, was public and outward confession. Most of you invited Jesus Christ to come into your heart and life, personal, intimate, private, one-on-one with the Lord. But on water baptism day, in many ways, it's like your marriage ceremony, your wedding ceremony to Jesus. It is a public outward confession that when I go underwater, the old me, the old single me is dead. When I come out of the water, I'm joined to the new lover of my soul. I go in as two wills. I come out as one will. My will is one with Jesus. It is outward. It is a public confession. The Bible says in Romans 10.10, Paul said this, with our heart we believe and we are justified with our mouth we confess that Jesus is Lord and we are saved. Do you see that? Water baptism is not a suggestion by our Lord. Let's be clear on that. It is a command. Jesus said in Mark 16, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, but those who refuse to believe will be condemned. He moved on and said in Matthew 28, Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's a command, not a suggestion. Next week, next week, next week, we're going to have water baptism. If you have not yet been water baptized, I admonish you. I strongly urge you. uh, Not I, but the Lord urges you. To have a wedding day, to publicly profess your love for the lover of your soul and be water baptized. Next week, it's going to be special. Uh, You say, Pastor, you don't have a tank that's functioning yet up there. I know. We're going to put a tank right here on the stage. Isn't that right, Pastor Rand? It's going to be right up here on the stage. You need to be water baptized. If you have questions, see Pastor Randy or myself. Lastly, the betrothal featured the cup of covenant shared between the bride and the groom. The bride and the groom on their betrothal day, literally their wedding day, they would take a cup that held the juice 
of the fruit of the vine. It would be a common cup, not two cups, one cup, as they both would drink from the common covenant cup, a loving cup, symbolizing the joining together of two wills becoming one, drinking from the common cup. Oh, I hope you see the salvation parallel. What does this table say? What is engraved in the front of this table? Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is not only remembrance of our Lord's death for our sins. Communion is not just remembering His broken body and His shed blood, but it is a remembrance of our betrothal to Jesus, the lover of our souls. Paul twice repeats in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me, in quoting Jesus. Every time you receive, every time we receive communion, we need to remember, not just the cross, remember who you're married to. Remember who you're betrothed to. Remember who is the lover of your soul. Who are you betrothed to? What are you betrothed to? Some of you that I'm talking to this morning might be betrothed to work. You'd say Jesus with your lips, but you're working 24-7. You're working uh, your fingers to the bone. And we're going to end up with bony fingers. Yeah, at the end of your days, you're going to fall short of God's will and plan for your life. God's will and plan for our lives is not working 24-7. Hear me in this. Hear me in this. I know there's times that there's emergencies, but when it's year after year and I haven't seen men and women in church because of working seven days a week, you're betrothed to something other than Jesus. And something is wrong here, and we know what it is. You're not betrothed to your money. Got a little quiet there, except for one. I said, you're not betrothed to your money. Money. Let's talk about it for a moment. Money, it can buy you the best doctors and the most palatial hospital suite. But money can't buy you health. Money, it can buy you the most expensive sleep number bed that they've got at Art Van. But it won't give you one minute of peace at night. Money can buy you popularity, but not one friend. Money can buy you a platinum-plated crucifix hanging around your neck. But money can't buy you a savior. Some are trying to be betrothed to having it all. They want pleasure. They want prosperity. They want prestige. They want popularity. They want it all. If we could resurrect this morning Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, George Michaels. If we could resurrect Prince this morning, Amy Winehouse. And I could go on and on and on and on. What would they say to us if we could resurrect them from the dead? What does it profit a soul if they gain the whole world? but lose their soul. 
Eternity brings a whole different perspective on life and living, doesn't it? What are you betrothed to? Who are you betrothed to? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous for you. With godly jealousy. He saw the church being married to something or someone other than Jesus. And he reminds them, For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. At the Lord's Supper, the cup that we hold is a loving cup. It reminds us of who we are betrothed to. I remind you, we're not betrothed uh, to the way some commercial artists paint the lover of our soul today. You and I are not betrothed to some effeminate creature walking around in girlish robes with Bambi eyes. We are betrothed to the mighty Son of God, Alpha and Omega, King of kings and Lord of lords before whom all of heaven bows and prostrates itself before whom the demons scream in terror and flee before whom when Jesus says to Satan jump uh, Satan asks how high he has all authority in heaven and earth but the good news is this Jesus is not only almighty he's all loving he's all loving he's all loving I'm talking about the lover of your soul. Uh, He'll never abandon you. He'll never desert you. He'll never abuse you. He'll never be neglectful of you. He'll never be charged with allegations of sexual harassment like we find in the news today. He is the faithful lover who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. No greater love hath mortal man than when he lays down his life for his friend. And that's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for me. He says to you, all ye that are heavy laden and heavy burdened and weary and stressed out at Christmas time, come unto me, come unto me, and I will give you rest. I'm talking about the lover of your soul. So when you take communion, you are saying, I'm betrothed to him who first loved me. I will not seek other lovers. I will not be unfaithful to Jesus. I will not commit spiritual adultery with anyone or anything. Jesus alone is my bridegroom. I am bound to Jesus by his body and by his blood. I hope that you have a whole new perspective of what communion is all about. It is the renewing of your vows with the lover of your heart, Jesus. Jesus. Remembering we're betrothed to Jesus grants us a living hope. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that uh, in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have a good time. In the world, you're going to have a vacation. What does it say? In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble, trials, testing, tough times. We want to say, thanks a lot, Jesus. Man, that's a great promise to go home with, to start my week. Oh, but we need to finish. 
In this world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. That means my attitude, your attitude in times of disappointment and difficulty, your attitude makes all the difference in the world. Your attitude either short circuits the power of God in your circumstances or opens up the mighty hand of God to do that which is miraculous, wonderful, incredible, amazing. Throughout God's Word, the same message is given over and over again. Despite life's difficulties, despite the disappointments you might run into, if we'll keep remembering who we're really married to, who we're betrothed to, if we will stay full of expectation hope, uh, expectation faith in Him, somehow, some way, we're going to come out on the other side of the storm more blessed, more prospered, more promoted, more increased. This is the Word of the Lord. I find no other in the scriptures. I'm talking about people like Daniel who went in the lion's den. But he came out because God stopped the mouths of the lions. And he came out more promoted and more increased. I'm talking about Ruth. uh, Ruth uh, who was destitute, homeless, poor, nothing. And God led her to the lover of her heart, Boaz. And Ruth became the ancestor of King David and Jesus Christ himself. I'm talking about Esther. Esther, who was plucked out of Nowheresville and had a Cinderella story and became queen of the mightiest empire of her age. I'm talking about Job. (laughs) Read the whole book of Job, but make sure you read the last chapter and not just the first chapter of his life. On the last chapter, what happened with Job? He was healed and he was double blessed. Double restoration double prosperity. You will find this restoration principle of double blessing. If you'll stay full of living hope in your bridegroom, you'll find it throughout the Word of God. But I want to target Joseph. Joseph exemplified a living hope in the lover of his soul. I'm talking about the Joseph of Genesis. Joseph was sold by his own jealous brothers into Egyptian slavery. None of your brothers or sisters would do that, would they? And then he went from bad to worse. Remember, his master's wife began making advances toward him. She began seducing him. This old cougar said, come and lie with me in bed. What did Joseph do? He said, man, I, man I, I better be careful. I could lose my job here. I, I better do what she wants. No! He remembered who he was betrothed to. Gentlemen, ladies, young people, I don't care if you're young or, or, or you're old this morning. This word goes for all of us. When you're confronted with sexual temptation... And it's a major, major, major problem in the church today. When you're confronted with sexual temptation, 
Look at the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I'm married. I'm betrothed to somebody else. I will not betrothed to this problem. I will not be overcome. I will not fall into sexual addiction or, or, or a habit. What did Joseph say? Joseph said in Genesis, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against my master. No, against God. He knew who he was married to. But God saw all of Joseph's injustices and and, and mistreatment. And he sees yours too. I said he sees yours too. And hear the word of the Lord, Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. God wants to restore to you the years, the hurts, uh, the injustices, the maltreatment, uh, the difficulties that have been robbed from your life. Somehow, some way, God can do it. That's what He did for Joseph. Because Joseph stayed full of expectation faith, because Joseph had a restoration uh, faith and mentality and mindset, God, in one day, God, in one day, took him from the prison to the palace. One day, one moment, after 13 years of combined slavery and imprisonment, because this man kept trusting God, kept his faith in God, his hope in God, God, in one day, turned it all around. And what he did for Joseph, he can do for you. As Joseph became vice president of the mightiest empire of his age. You see that? If you're in the middle of some tough, terrible season in your life, bankruptcy, unemployment, cancer, I don't know what it is. Don't crawl into the corner in a fetal position, sucking your thumb, crying out, Oh, woe is me! Don't do that! Let hope fill your heart. Remember who you're betrothed to. Our God who knows no defeat or retreat. Our God who will not and cannot fail you. Our God who can make a way where there seems to be no way. Know that your holy bridegroom can not only restore what's been taken from you, he can bring you out more blessed, more promoted, more prospered, more healthy than ever before. In difficulty and disappointment, remember who you're betrothed to. Move in restoration expectation. Trust God to bring you out better off than you were before. But Pastor Phil, you don't know the trouble I've seen. Preacher, you don't know how bad my marriage really is. You don't know the kind of debt, crazy debt. That I've dug myself a hole into. No, stop talking like that. Stop focusing on what you can't do. Or what's not happening. Stop focusing on your problems. Stop magnifying your difficulties. Lift up your hands. Lift up your voices. And begin to magnify your bridegroom, the lover of your soul. Stop confessing hopelessness. And start declaring with God. God, all things are possible. Stop telling God how big and nasty your giants are. And start telling those nasty giants how big your God is. There it is. Where's your focus? Where's your confession? What are you talking about most of the time? Is it negativity or your God who cannot fail you? 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes. You need to underscore that, highlight, circle that. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. That word temporary, literally, literally, in the Greek, the original language, that word temporary, you can write it down, it means subject to change. Subject to change. I like that. Don't fix your eyes on the temporary, that which is subject to change, but on your unfailing, steadfast love of your Lord. That means... The seen things, the cancer, the divorce, problem children, problem grandchildren, the stuff of life that we see, it's subject to change. Your health might not look good right now, but you can look at it in the mirror and say, you're subject to change. You may need to open up your checkbook when you go home and say, uh, for those of you that are in terrible debt, uh, or facing bankruptcy, open up your checkbook and say, you, in the name of Jesus, you are subject to change. Uh, nothing might be going right in your life right now, but, but you need to take your stand and say, you're, you're, you're subject to change. You, you might work for a boss. You might have a boss at work who's rude and crude. Uh, next time he's rude and crude to you, next time she's rude and crude to you, j- just smile and say, you're subject to change. But, but better, you better do that in prayer, though. Better do that in prayer instead of face-to-face or your job might be subject to change. How many of you have the enemy taunting you this morning, whispering in your ear that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, that that you're dirty, you're filthy, you're unworthy. You you might have him taunting you, uh, telling you, I've got your kids. I've got your grandkids. They're mine and they're going straight to hell. Instead of getting discouraged and losing hope in the name of Jesus, declare to old Slewfoot, the blood of Jesus is against you. I claim them by faith through the cross of Calvary. You're subject to change. If you want to see God restore what's been stolen from you, you must let hope arise and move in expectation faith of the lover of your soul, your bridegroom. Get up each morning expecting good things to happen throughout the day. Expecting that in a moment, that's all God needs. In a moment, He can turn everything around. In a moment, you could be standing right next to your miracle. Mary Magdalene, she stood at the open tomb of Jesus, weeping and crying. It was the lowest moment in her life. And suddenly she sensed someone standing behind her. She turned around. She thought it was the gardener. And she said, where have you taken the body of my Lord? And she didn't realize who she was standing next to. And he said, Mary. And she said, Rabboni. All the time of her agony, 
She had been standing right next to her greatest miracle. In one day, God took Joseph from the pit to the palace. In a suddenly, in a moment, at one day, at one time, God can do it for you. All it takes is one touch of God's favor. And everything can change. Everything. It was four years ago, this fall, that I received a call from my son in Southern California. John kind of takes in personality, attitude, and disposition from the other side of the family. He's not emotional like his dad. Yet I'll never forget that phone call. It was like a phone call from hell. He was convulsively crying and sobbing on the other end. I heard him scream across the phone. I did not heed the Holy Spirit. We literally thought during that season there was the potential of John having a nervous breakdown and losing out on everything. He's a steady Eddie, but let me tell you, there's nothing like a broken heart. Capiche? He had been going with what he had thought was the girl of his dreams for a whole year. He'd called home over and over again. She's the pastor's wife I've prayed for and I've looked for. I'm in love with her. I, I really feel that she's the one. A year into the relationship, one of his friends from college caught up with John and said, you mean you're going with so-and-so? John said, yes. I really believe she's the one. Well, the young man said, haven't you seen Facebook? And brought John to a site, uh, a, I'm not a Facebooker, so I don't understand the lingo that John was never able to access. And here was picture after picture after picture of another life, a double life that she had been living, another guy that she was courting, dating, traveling the world with, a surfing photographer. And I literally thought my son was going to lose his mind. We began speaking hope. We began speaking expectation faith. We began speaking God's suddenly into his heart and life and how God could suddenly turn it all around if we just turn it all over to him, the lover of his soul. One month later, just one month, one month later, I get a call from my son. You talk about a phone call of victory. You talk about a phone call of triumph. He said, Dad, I've just been on a date. Dad. I said, how can you know in one date? He said, I just know that I know that I know 
this is going to be my wife. This is going to be my pastor's wife that I've been praying for. In less than a year, I was performing their wedding ceremony. And I'll never forget the vow, the vows that Taryn, John's wife, his bride on that day wrote for him. I've got to read them to you if you don't mind. It shows the power of faith, expectation faith in what God did. Our story, she writes, is undeniably a testament of God's faithfulness, His perfect timing, and His incredible love for us. I thank Him every day for the precious gift He gave me in you. From this day forward, I vow to give you all of me to be faithful and loyal to you, forsaking all others, and joyfully give you the fullness of my heart's affection. I vow to pursue you relentlessly, keeping our love young, vibrant, and full of life. I commit to use my words and actions to build you up, encourage you, and affirm your true identity and worth in Christ. I vow to respect you as my husband, allowing you to lead us and protect my heart. I vow to always protect your heart and and tenderly for your soul. Above all things, I vow to entrust our marriage, family, and ministry to the Lord. I'm ready to walk hand in hand as we boldly step into whatever adventure God has planned for us. I love you so much, Jonathan Philip Christ, and I can't wait for a life full of laughter and joy with you by my side. Go ahead and show the next. Look at what God did. Amen. Listen, pastor's not boasting or bragging. But what God has done for others, He can do for you. He has no favorites. And whatever you're dealing with, God can turn it around in a moment. For Paul the Apostle says this, and I close with this verse, May you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep, how high His love really is. Now glory be to God, who by His mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or dream of. Infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we prepare for this Holy Supper and closing this morning, I ask, Almighty God, That, Lord, you would prepare our hearts with expectation faith to do the miraculous in our lives because of who we're betrothed to. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed here this morning. And as heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one is looking around, isn't it about time you would say yes to the lover of your soul, Jesus? You're here this morning. You want to join us in Holy Communion, but your your life is not right with God. You're not sure that you have a home in heaven. If you want to be sure, 
I'm prepared to pray a prayer, a prayer of salvation, a prayer that will make you right with God, a prayer that will grant you a home in heaven. If you would like to put your faith in this prayer, your faith especially in your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, would you just lift up your hand right now? I want to see you be able to take communion with us. How many are here this morning? Lift it up high so that I can see it. If you want to be included in a prayer that will make you right with God and give you a home in heaven, lift it up high. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. God bless you. God bless you, sir. Thank you. God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. I see those hands. How many more? God bless you, young person. I see that hand. How many more this morning? Lift it up high to Jesus. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. I see those hands. God bless you. Keep those hands lifted up. This is a testimony of your faith in Jesus. Everyone pray this prayer with me, especially you that have your hands lifted up. Own this prayer. Make this prayer your prayer. Dear Jesus, I come to you right now just as I am. I confess I have sinned. I'm away from you, God. I am a sinner. But Jesus... You are my Savior, the lover of my soul. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead with resurrection life. I want that life, Jesus. A new life, a changed life. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me, for changing me. I thank you that you're my bridegroom. I thank you that I am saved. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I welcome you to join us in Holy Communion. The Bible says you're born again. After the service, please stop down here in the front and meet one of our elders, one of our lay ministers. We want to share more with you about this walk with Jesus. We have a gift just for you.